Our next presenter for the afternoon is Naomi Schofield. It's right here. Hello. Please join me in welcoming Naomi to the stage. Thank you. It's hard being up here on my own, having seen the power up here. I feel a little, little bit lonely. So, I'll just wait for my slides to come up. But, um, yeah, we're almost at the end. I know Jane said that, but I just want to acknowledge that. And if you need to stand up or move around, I understand. I was sitting on the floor at the back because I get a sore back sitting in these chairs. So. Um, the other thing I wanted to say up front is I share a story sort of near the middle of my talk which touches on suicide, so if that's something you don't want to hear about today, just do whatever you need to do. Um, that's me, Naomi. Uh, I'm a GM of design at Xero where we make accounting software, which has already been mentioned um, today. I loved hearing that story, by the way. I love hearing about the actual context of our users, which is highly, highly variable. Um, I love working at Xero, and if anyone wants to speak about or speak with me about that, I'd be very, very happy to talk with anyone about it. But specifically today, I'm sharing around ideas of leadership um, and creative leadership in particular, and this idea of the, the new normal. And hopefully, it's going to build upon a lot of what we've already been talking about. There's certainly heaps of parallels. And at one point during the day, I was like, oh, make sure you reference this, make sure you reference that. And then, to be honest, it became a little bit <laughs> too long a list. So you'll have to make those connections yourself, but I'm sure you're capable of that. So my perspectives are, of course, um, shaped by my own experience. And like many others here, um, I've taken a slightly circuitous path to, to design. So my professional life actually began with a PhD in physics. I worked in academia for a long time um, in atomic physics. So if that's something that gets you going, it's a good topic to chat about with me. Um, I sort of transitioned a little bit painfully into software development consulting, so I worked with Jane at ThoughtWorks. Um, done project, program management, product strategy, and then, you know, only more recently, like the last seven years or so, design and design leadership. Um, and I'm also currently working my way through an MBA. I really, um, I really believe that business and commercial acumen is a kind of a skill that's um, valuable for design leaders. Um, and particularly when we consider this year's themes of well-being, resilience, hybrid working, these are obviously general leadership concerns. All CEOs are talking about them right now. But um, specifically, I think for designers, it's our well-being um, and its relationship to our ability to innovate and be creative that kind of underpins what we bring to the teams that we are a part of. Um, and it's also kind of the reason that we get out of bed in the morning. We want to be able to put our our mind to use to, to actively and effectively solve problems and um, well-being and resilience has a really direct impact on that and how we can do it and how well we can do it. So we can either let that diminish our effectiveness or we can actually use it to make us more effective, which is what I think we ought to be doing. So let's get into it. In the recent past, many of us have probably taken for granted the ability of our teams to show up and stand in a room for five days, eight hours, and swarm on a design challenge together and, and kind of be able to, you know, introvert or extrovert, introverts probably hated it, but you know, we expected teams to do that. Um, and that was, you know, and it's not the only way, obviously I'm simplifying things here, but it was a really common method. Um, and we know that that's just not true. Like, even if we are back in the office, nobody wants to do that anymore, like, we've had a taste of something better. Um, 
So leading design teams in the context of this so-called new normal, where, where teams are hopefully hybrid or remote, or um, you know, even if they're together, I think resilience has changed in our teams, means that we, we need to understand kind of the principles of our design thinking, but not necessarily remain really wedded to those practices. So I'll talk a bit about these opportunities. Um, opportunities, I think, for, for better empathy with one another, for better collaboration across kind of global time zones, um, and the importance of having an adaptive approach to leadership in that context. Um, and I'm going to use an analogy in four parts, which I hope you will kind of grasp and, and take on board. So stick with me for a sec. I want you to imagine three planes, three planes that are parallel. The first is the hype, and I like that you guys talked about the reality and the expectation, because it's a little bit like that. Um, so yeah, I'm calling the first part the hype. Um, this, this new normal uh, is full of, I guess, what's the word for it? There's a lot of talk about how great it is that we'll never go back to the way the things were, right? And there's a lot of things that we've uncovered that we're actually working better, perhaps, than they were before. Um, and so, yeah, it's not to say that those things aren't true, but they're certainly hyped up. Um, we've got better work-life balance, for example, in general. Also, the idea that crisis um, and the constraints that it provides make creativity thrive more than it used to. I think that's certainly true, but can also be hyped. And so if there's a hype, then there's also the reality, which often doesn't live up to the hype. And then the third, third plane, if you like, um, is that there's actually a new need that's been uncovered because of this. And it's hidden, perhaps, <laughs> by the hype. But that new need is um, for organisations to innovate actually more than they did before, right? Because um, they, they need to in order to survive and recover from some of the like broader financial and economic stress that they've been through and continue to go through. So there's more need than there was, but there's also this kind of hyper reality in front of it. So that's the construct I'd like you to have in your mind if you can as we talk about these things. And really I picture it like that. Our, our people, our teams and ourselves or our organisations are faced with the reality and, and there's also this kind of hype to navigate which has got some really good things that we ought to pick up um, but but the goal if you like is to understand and address the need and, and we're designers and that's what we're trying to do so leaders need to help teams navigate that thing so four things hype reality need and then leadership so let's get into it and we'll start with the hype I think it's pretty well documented that um, creativity and innovation thrive in a time of crisis. We've had a great history lesson on some of that stuff already. Um, many of the Western world's most significant kind of scientific and technological leaps may have happened in wartime. And they, they were, yeah, if not developed during, they were certainly accelerated by things like penicillin and radar and canned food. And we saw it in the pandemic with um, people's approach to uh, vaccine development, whatever your view is on that, um, or the way that we obviously work as teams. So yeah, crisis speeds up adoption and development of new technologies in general. And one of the 
the key reasons that we see that happening is because people are much more focused, right? So the urgent and the important are completely aligned in these times of crisis. They're identical. The things that are most important, also the most urgent. And that's just not typically the case in our daily work, especially if you're a manager. There's heaps of important things, uh, sorry, there's heaps of urgent things that aren't necessarily important. And there's a, a great deal of important things that get neglected and they actually distract us and we, we, like they sit in the side of our mind. We're like, that thing is really important and I haven't made any progress on it in four weeks and now I feel like shit and I'm a terrible leader and, you know, but at least I, you know, approve that person's leave and, you know, they're going on holiday or whatever. Um, so, we, we have some methods to get around that, like we dedicate chunks of time to solving problems because we know it's important and we say we won't do that other thing today. Um, so focus is one thing, but the other reason that um, creativity can thrive during crisis is that some of the psychological barriers for creativity are actually removed. So we're desperate, if you like, and we're much more willing to break rules. We know we're not going to get told off because everyone's looking in the same direction. Um, we don't feel as compelled to stay in our lane, essentially. And all of this rule-breaking and lateral movement means you get more innovative thinking and just more ideas in general and faster outcomes. So interestingly, and I'm sure people have personal experience with this, there's increasing evidence that there were impacts to individuals' expression of creativity during lockdown periods and during COVID. Um, maybe you took up a new skill and you started making sourdough bread. Um, and I think that was a good thing, right? Like creative expression was used as a method to cope um, with boredom or with stress, anxiety or, you know, really chronic problems. Um, and artists would be, you know, experimenting with new mediums and things. And for me, I, <laughs> I got advertised a lot on Instagram for making like, I don't know if anyone else got these, but these like terrazzo resin. I don't even know if that's the right word. I spent an obscene amount of money to buy the materials, which arrived about 18 months later, and then I never touched them. Um, anyway, here's a little insight into how I work. Um, did a lot of handmade pasta making as well with my kids, and just things that honestly don't even interest me. I don't know why I did them, but I was just trying to get through. I'm also from Melbourne, by the way, so this was a good two years of my life. That I'm, and I think that'll come through. Um, I also saw a kind of distorted picture of this creative expression um, on LinkedIn. I don't know if this feels familiar. I'm, I'm the tired manager <laughs> who's just trying to concentrate for more than three minutes at a time. And then, you know, you go on LinkedIn and you'd be like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is thriving and, you know, new business spinning up and people have taken, like, life's lemons and they're <laughs> making lemonade or whatever. Good for them. Um, <laughs> And, and obviously, like, the entrepreneurial responses that people had to COVID or their personal situation, like, t commendable and necessary. Um, but I found myself asking, like, gosh, when, when am I going to feel that way? Or when am I going to see that in my workplace? Like, we're just trying to do our jobs um, and everything's changed. And it, it doesn't feel nice. I think that's, that's all I can say. And for me, I never had a period um, unlike many Australians, I didn't have a period of concern about my employment in this time, so I just want to say, say that. Um, so I'm aware that I was very privileged, but um, it was, yeah, at times incredibly stressful. And, yeah, in comparison to that kind of LinkedIn picture, I felt many more of these things, and these are not all from my own life, right? These are things that I think are common and I saw other people experience as well. But essentially, I was trying to do the same job 
um, that I had done before, but in a context that was nothing like, nothing like what it was before. It wasn't physically the same, it wasn't mentally the same, it wasn't emotionally the same. I had to remain creative, I had to remain able to concentrate, I had to stay passionate. Um, and yeah, the way I found myself and, and colleagues as well responding to that was um, yeah, really unique in the, in the way that I found myself emotionally, physically responding to that. So this is the reality and what we discussed before was the hype, if you can remember, the planes. So I think it's really fair for us to just acknowledge that they're not the same, the hype and the reality. Not that one is more true, perhaps, but one might be more, more true for you at any given time. Um, so people actually measured happiness at work. This is uh, from the UK and, and how it changed and was impacted by social policies. Without looking in too much detail at this graph, um, we can see people have gone on a roller coaster, right? It's, it's an emotional roller coaster. And obviously your happiness at work impacts not just productivity, but the way that you behave with the people that you're working with. Um, we've also seen that people's values have shifted. So they're much more aware of health and well-being, and their expectations on the workplace have changed, which we've talked a lot about today, um, particularly around flexibility, which for some people I'd say has become more important than the work itself. So to summarise the reality or our new normal, if you like, um, in the bleakest possible terms, we might have teams that are made up of people who have reduced resilience for, for a range of reasons, and workplaces that in many cases are completely unrecognisable to them, if they even exist. So, and that is the bleakest possible term, right? <laughs> just to say that. Um, on the one hand, we're saying creativity is potentially thriving, in at least in people's personal lives, and we have these conditions and constraints that should drive innovation more effectively, perhaps. But then on the other hand, um, yeah, we're faced with these new dynamics, and I think the, we can acknowledge that the methods we use for innovation probably need to change because they're not so appealing anymore. Not to me, not to people in, in the teams I work with. So let's look at this final complication, which is the new need. Um, so this is some data from McKinsey, but essentially it helps us understand how innovation is prioritised across a range of sectors, um, pre-crisis and then in June. 2020. So it's not as important is <laughs> the key message, obviously in pharma and medical supplies, it's gone up. Um, so leaders are shifting their priorities, it's, it's uncertain, this is really typical. Um, innovation used to be a top two priority and it's not anymore. And they're, they're shifting it to focus on their core business, right, because they don't know what's going to happen. Um, but at the same time, the actual need for innovation has increased because we're in a period of uncertainty. So there's this paradox. Um, what this shows here is market capitalisation, which is essentially what you're worth, um, comparing the S&P 500 with the um, top 50 most innovative com companies. So that'll be a subset of those 500. Um, essentially, they do better during the crisis. This is the 2009 financial crisis. So different context, but still similar macroeconomic situation. They do better during, and then they recover better. So I think this is accepted, and we, we understand then that people need to innovate, but they're not. <laughs> they're doing the opposite of what they ought to do. 
Um, what they are doing is playing it safe, they're stabilising, they're sticking with things that are known and they're waiting for certainty and, and I've seen this uh, where I am. But actually they're needing to sort of be brave if you like, do the things on the right, adapt, identify new opportunities, re-evaluate re investment in innovation and then build this foundation to grow, you know, as things continue to change. So, with all that context, what does it mean for our leadership? How do we help our team sort of navigate, if we can go back to the picture, through the reality and the hype to, to actually get to a place where we're effectively um, influencing our, our leadership around investment in innovation? So I've got a few ideas about this. It's not exhaustive by any means, so I'd love to talk about it more with anyone um, afterwards. But I want to stop there and just tell a quick story. This story is about my first day in a big new job, that's what I'm going to call it, um, where I was moving from having managed one team to having to manage three teams across a number of locations. Um, and um, yeah, they were. I, I knew them, but I didn't know them that well, right? I knew I was in for a ramp-up period of several months to sort of get to know these people and get their trust. So it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I got a call um, from one of my new direct reports. So, yeah, someone I knew, but I hadn't managed yet. And I answered the call from the hospital because I'd spent the night in hospital with my son who had an infection, and he was, he was well at that stage, like he was recovering. Um, but it was also during COVID, so hospitals were, were weird, right? Um, the doctors barely came into the room. They sort of were wearing not just masks, but, you know, full PPE. It was this sort of surreal experience, I'm sure some of you, if, I hope none of you, but I'm sure some of you experienced something like that. So, um, hadn't slept well, 8 o'clock in the morning, received this call. Um, and I don't know why I picked up the phone, but anyway, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have. Um, he was calling to let me know that someone in his team had over the weekend attempted to take their own life and that they were recovering in hospital. Um, and I did know this person. Um, I had met them quite a few times. So, as you can imagine, that um, kicked off a, a really interesting learning <laughs> period for me. Um, and we needed to sort of make some quick decisions about the project that this person was working on and how we would communicate with them and with their team and what we would say and, you know, how, how to manage the whole situation. Um, but the thing that was crystal clear to me, like, immediately, was that there was only really two things that mattered. It was kind of like, how's that person going? And how is the people in that person's team going? Like, that, you know, it was really obvious. It was this point of focus, if you like, or crisis, where the urgent, important, kind of, kind of the same thing. Um, so the reason I tell that story... Oh, sorry, there's one more thing. So I called this person up a few days ago, well, last week, just to say, hey, think about sharing this story. Um, how would you feel and, and what are the things you think you'd like me to share? Um, and, you know, we sort of talked around what can, what can leaders learn from your, your story and your situation. And they said to me, I know, I know my story's extreme, and, and it is, and their, their challenges have been ongoing. Um, but the principles that you use to deal with somebody, you know, who's managing trauma, as this person is, or chronic mental health challenges are actually relevant to and they benefit everybody. 
Um, and we sort of had this collective aha moment where we're like, it's like those Microsoft inclusive design principles, right? Where you solve for one or, or the permanent and it, and it actually extends to many. So I tried to push that as far as I could because I thought that was a nice little tidbit. Um, so you might have, yeah, these well-being and resilience challenges, and that may not be the right term for them, but they obviously can range from permanent to temporary. You have people in your team who have something that's ongoing and severe. Um, or who, who might be going through periods of grief that could be, you know, temporary or acute and then a come and go. Um, but then there's people with more trivial, or seemingly more trivial, but very real challenges. They can't, their internet's not working, they feel like a piece of shit and they just like, they need to take the day off or whatever it is. Um, so designing our leadership style and the way that we organise ourselves around that to accommodate for, for any one of those, it benefits everybody because we're all going to be in a situation like that essentially. So really, if nothing else, before I get a little bit practical, I think the key thing that I took from that was like reflecting on the kind of leader that I want to be, knowing that you know, as a people leader, I can't predict what it is that day or week that's kind of, kind of come across my desk. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, I've never had one. Um, yeah, knowing who I want to be is probably the, the most grounding thing that I can kind of ask and be sure of. Um, you know, knowing what to do in a given situation, I've given up on trying to, you know, predict what that would be. But if I can at least answer what kind of leader I would want to be, I think that's a pretty good start. So, whoops, did I skip that something? No. Um, we've already covered empathy pretty well today, which is nice. But essentially, I wonder when asking that, because we're designers, hopefully lots of us thought, I want to be an empathetic leader. If you thought that, then good, because it turns out that's exactly what we need right now. So this um, graph on the right shows the different drivers of happiness for people in the workplace and how it changed over, um, well, between 2019 and 2020. Um, so further this way means it's more important to people. Um, but essentially what it shows is they didn't change that much. <laughs> that's the main thing. Um, so even though the, the situation and people's happiness went up and down, the drivers of happiness didn't change, if that makes sense. So it's not as if we need to drastically change the way that we manage people, um, which I think is a good thing. But what we have begun to understand is how important empathy is in allowing people to feel safe enough to be creative and to innovate. And that's what this number on the right shows. So you've got an empathetic leader, you're far, far more likely to be able to do innovative work um, if, if you don't have one. And I actually think that's become quite obvious from the stuff that's been shared today. Um, the other thing I'd say is we need to be cautious about just replicating the methods that we used before. And I sort of said this already, but you know, video meetings are an absolute drainer on, on your like mental ability, right? And it, you've, some people suffer more from that, right? Some people love the I don't know, the barrier that it brings and certainly the flexibility that it gives us, but we can't do it for long periods of time. Um, equally, at my work, we have people in different locations in different time zones, so being face-to-face, -face, even on video, is not... There's only a few hours a day that we get to do that. Um, so don't replicate, like, leverage or take advantage of. Um, I think, was it Nathan, you, you talked about those method cards, and I thought... <laughs> I was thinking about them, like... Um, 
sometimes we use those trigger questions to stimulate innovation, like, well, how would you solve this problem if you were in Japan? Or how would you solve this problem if you had $25 million? Like, you know, those kind of constraint-free or constraint-heavy questions. You actually have people in your team who someone's like it's night time for them or someone is in the middle of a hot summer or someone's in a different country or, you know, like those different contexts that people are coming at to your, if it's a session or to your problem with, are actually playing that role of bringing different perspectives. So you don't even have to like necessarily do that in a really intentional way. That will naturally happen for you. So just knowing that and not fighting it, I think is really powerful. Um, one of the things that we needed to do at Zero was get really specific about using time, and this sounds really boring, like we all did long training on this, and I was like, oh gosh, productivity training. Um, it was freeing, right, because we agreed, like, you can say no to meetings, don't have them. Every time you're going to book one in, ask yourself if you should. And, and even if you think the answer is yes, try not having one, and then see what happens, you know. Um, digital hygiene, like, the effect of having a device near you in the same room, how that impacts your focus was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Um, so yeah, really practical stuff about how to make um, the cognitive load of just doing your job that little bit less was really, really helpful. Um, we've also got incredibly structured about um, asynchronous work and we try to do it by default. So again, that's the same as saying we don't have meetings. Um, in order to do that well, you do have to have rules about how you communicate, um, and that will be resisted. Um, I resisted it, <laughs> and, and I had a colleague, Erin, who was really good at coaching us, and, and they would just say, just try it for a week, Naomi, we'll talk about it in a week, and you can tell me what you've learned. And every time I come back in a week, I say, it's okay, Erin. <laughs> I see what you mean now. <laughs> so um, challenging yourself and your teams to try things for a week is good. That diagram, by the way, is literally just like, if you want, like, it tells us how to communicate certain types of information. So documentation is, becomes much, much more important, which, again, is something that kind of grinds me the wrong way. Like, I had to, I had to see it work um, to go, yeah. The other thing that asynchronous working does is it creates a more inclusive workspace because you're not preferencing people who are available at a given time. Um, so it really democratises a lot of parts of um, decision making. So let's assume that we apply all these things and that works really well for us and all of a sudden we are able to continue to or use our skills to innovate effectively despite having different conditions and different um, mindsets. What about the need? How do we increase our confidence in innovation activities amongst the people who need to decide to invest in them. So I'm just going to share one very brief um, and probably well-known framework around this, but I think it's a, a good starting point. So essentially, if we can understand that there are two questions that every board asks, and they might ask them in different words, but do you, do you have any money today? And are you going to have any money tomorrow? And if you can say yes to both, they'll say you're fine. And if you say no to either one, then you've got a problem. So organisations and decision makers need to sort of map their, their portfolio of products or initiatives or whatever it is against those money today, yes or no, tomorrow, yes or no. Um, if it's a no and a no, get rid of it. <laughs> That's your pet. 
Um, if it gives you money today, but it's on the way out, you, you milk that cow, essentially. Your stars are doing well, and then the question marks is where all the innovation happens. So if you're mapping your portfolio and this is empty, as it may be, or at least less full than it was before, um, as it would be in most organisations today, then that's a trigger for a conversation of where's your money tomorrow going to come from? And the reason, and you don't have to actually draw, <laughs> draw the diagram, but you could. Um, the reason I think that's helpful is as designers, you know, talking um, to the executive level and trying to influence those decision makers, you need to be talking about questions that they're actually asking. And so for us, we might say, you know, we're going to get disrupted or our users' expectations are changing. We know all of that's true, but the board's just saying, are we going to have money tomorrow? So it's just using perhaps slightly different language or a different framework to have that conversation. So to summarise, if you remember the reality, the hype and the need, navigating that with your teams, I want you to ask yourself, what sort of leader do I want to be? How do I want to show up for people? Can I practise using my empathy muscle in a different way? Because it's not just an innate skill, you can actually practise. Um, are there any methods that you and your team should try just for a week? Because they may not all work, by the way. Like, I'm sure I'll, I'll, one will come across my path that doesn't. Um, and then finally, what influencing conversations do you think you might need to have once you actually get, get to that need? That's it. Thank you.